Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. Every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hello, I'm Cheryl Stokes, a partner at Hydric and Struggles New York office and a member of Hydric Consulting's Leadership Development and Culture Shaping Practices. In today's podcast, I'm speaking with Mike Puzaferi, retired deputy chief and a key leader in the FDNY, the New York City Fire Department. Mike is also a senior research associate with Christian Regenhardt's Center for Emergency Response Studies at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Mike was a pivotal player in FDNY's response on 9-11, and he was one of many chiefs leading operations at the World Trade Center and the recovery afterward. Mike, welcome, and thank you for taking time to speak with us today. Morning, Cheryl, and it's my pleasure to be able to uh, give my perspective on the FDNY's recovery after 9-11. Mike, you helped lead FDNY through one of the most difficult and challenging periods in history, the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent rebuilding. Can you remind us of the state of the FDNY after 9-11, please? Uh, The FDNY was devastated after the 9-11 attacks. We were heartbroken, emotionally challenged, operationally challenged, and uncertain about the department's way forward. While there were many effects uh, after the attacks on the World Trade Center, there was three that I'm going to highlight, three areas. First is uh, the losses of our human capital. We lost 343 folks that day uh, among the uh, 2,000 plus that were lost at the Trade Center collapse. And this included our agency's top leadership, the chief of department, first deputy commissioner, staff chiefs, deputy chiefs, battalion chiefs, on down through all the ranks. And really the loss of human capital in numbers could be something like the loss of a related institutional knowledge of over 4,000 years. And then second loss was to our operation resources and their capabilities. Loss of specialized equipment, apparatus, loss of specialized units, any type of equipment that you might imagine would be attached to an emergency response. The third area that we look at is the effect of the attacks on the culture. Of course, there was a sadness that permeated the department from the human losses. And the loss of senior personnel was big because they were actually cultural icons, mentors, opinion leaders at all levels, and senior personnel who took the young folks under their wing and and kind of shaped their... uh, their futures and their uh, careers. And then finally, there was a a shock to the system. The folks were tired, were physically and mentally exhausted. Then arose the idea or the question, did we have the capabilities to face the threats of a new world? Wow, Mike, that is absolutely devastating, even hearing it again today. And it, it had to seem insurmountable at that time. So, Talk to us about what you all were able to do to go about rebuilding. How did you regain your human capital, good operational capability, and really shore up the culture? Let me just say that the attacks occurred in September. By January of the next year, we had a new commissioner who would champion the change. He came in and he had a plan. He brought in a well-known consulting group, 
conducted an independent review of the attacks that day. It was a narrow review. The consultant at some point within a five-month period teamed up with task forces from the fire department in New York, about 50 folks. And together, these two groups developed a plan for going forward, published in a, a document that came out in August of 2002. And this would be the roadmap for us going forward. There were three areas of change, or actually four areas of change, that the plan focused on. The first was to increase operational procedures to manage escalating and large-scale events. And this uh, focused on improving interoperability and accountability. And they utilized a system called the Incident Command System. It was introduced to the FDNY. And uh, with that, two incident management teams, these are 28 person teams that can be dropped into any type of emergency and immediately start to put things together. It's a, uh, a modular type of framework that can expand as needed and collapse as needed. And the second uh, improvement focused on improving the department's planning and management processes. Uh, they put into place a formal planning uh, agenda with an annual plan that was clearly laid out goals and objectives for the year, had tracking tools and aligned with the mission and vision of the department. And then this was, I think, one of the biggest moves that helped to make the uh, rebuilding a success. The job developed a planning and oversight committee, and they would be the folks that would start to create and put together tailored programs that the rest of the department would become involved in and, and create the change. A third area that was lacking on the day of uh, the attacks was communications and technology capabilities. So the fire department developed a state-of-the-art communication center. You know, I would say that uh, it would look like something on Star Trek, but that's outdated now, but at the time it did. And then it, it got us new uh, radio capabilities. You know, tall buildings in New York are difficult to talk beyond floor to floor, so we we got new uh, technology that helped to improve our communications with other agencies. And then finally, there was a uh, focus on cultural changes. And one of the big ones to, was to en enhance family and member support services. Now, after the initial losses on 9-11, you know, part of our culture is to take care of the families that uh, we've lost. And a lot of time was spent on that afterwards. For the nine months afterwards, while we were working at uh, the 9-11 site during recovery, and then uh, even for years beyond that. So that was really a, a calming effect on the uh, culture. And it really showed that the department was concerned about not only the folks on duty, but the uh, extended families. Hey, Mike, that is really impressive. As one of FDNY's leaders, what did you do to promote sponsor and support this journey of change? I was one of many. There are hundreds of folks working on projects, doing training, and taking the steps necessary to re recover and then rebuild the department and eventually make it stronger than it was before we were hit on 9-11. So just me as an example of one of those many folks, uh, I would have a day job. I would work in the field as a battalion chief in the North Bronx and then as a deputy chief in Midtown Manhattan. And I'd work in that uh, pyramid type structure, chain of command. But then the big piece, and I thought this was really 
was kind of fun too was that the, the organization or the job and the planning committee develop a matrix type system or matrix type system where we had our day job in the pyramid and at night or whatever spare time we have we'd work on our projects in a safe space off on the side and it really led to uh, time to be creative to do research and to come back and this was part of the deal come back with something that had or potentially had legs and was really actionable so I uh, promoted information sharing capacities I sponsored a Fire Officers Management Institute group, which was an executive education group or like a corporate education group for senior leaders. And I supported collaboration with other organizations. We utilized uh, the exercise design program and had exercises got almost any agency you could think of in, in New York City. And then beyond that, we worked with uh, Coast Guard agencies, the National Guard, the MTA, you know, and on and on. I was uh, given an opportunity to work or lead kind of a think tank. After the uh, 9-11 attacks, one of the outcomes was the development of a, what I call a think and do tank. You know, we would put together projects and actually implement them. And the uh, fellow that put together the uh, Center for Terrorism and Disaster Preparedness Studies took a year off. So the job put me in. Uh, his spot for a year, and I acted as uh, the bureau chief. Well, the bureau itself, CTDP, had an exercise, exercise design wing. It had a uh, weapons of mass destruction wing, and that included studying the potential threats that you might see in the movies or on TV. And also we looked at all hazards, hurricanes, earthquakes, etc., etc. But what we were lacking in was an information sharing uh, capability. So I had a staff that was unbelievable. I made some suggestions and they went forward and created uh, an information sharing capability that spreads across the nation and they interact uh, with different organizations and exchange information and exchange the knowledge drawn from that information and increase our preparedness. That sounds great, Mike. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you were able to create this think and do tank. How did purpose and vision play into your ability to innovate? The fellow that developed the uh, CTDP was the uh, initial chief at the World Trade Center attacks. So his vision was pretty clear afterwards. He wanted to develop an ability or a capability that would answer the problems that were encountered that day, namely weapons of mass destruction, or in this case, the terrorist attacks. He wanted to develop a, a system that would assess capabilities of organizations, so he developed the uh, exercise design portion. And then I had the chance or the opportunity to develop the information sharing portion. And really, it was they came out of the need that was found that day at the World Trade Center. We just felt it in our hearts and our souls that these were areas that had to be focused on, and not just focused on, but answered, and answered in a manner that they were taken care of. 
you talked about the culture as being resilient, as being an, a learning organization, and so many organizations today desire to have what you're describing. What are the things that you as leaders do to contribute to that culture and to, to build that resilience and um, the learning orientation that you have? You know, from the moment that you walk in the door in your first firehouse, someone senior, you know, if it's a firefighter, senior in rank, he's had time on a job, more experience, he takes you under his wing and has, takes on responsibility and accountability for your education. And then that's scalable, that goes on through the ranks, lieutenant, captain, battalion chief, deputy chief, staff chief, etc. But one of the, the other things is that the um, fire department kind of looks ahead. It looks at its leaders, current leaders, and then makes a decision on who is likely to be the next level of leaders and then even a, a third tier. And it starts to take those folks and, and shape them. You know, for the senior folks, it was the uh, fire officers, management institute, executive education type piece. It, there would be leadership programs like the West Point Leadership Program or the Naval Postgraduate School where folks would join in on these graduate uh, level type programs where the purpose was to get the next tiers of leaders engaged in ideas that were, you know, kind of outside the box. And those kinds of programs would then be relegated to the uh, the matrix type system where they could sit in a safe place or be in a safe place and work these creative ideas. And then they would bring the creative ideas back to the department. And I would say that one of the beauties of the department is that we had uh, superiors that were open to change, understanding that you needed to change with the times and change with what was happening out there to keep the organization safe and to still get our jobs done. How did after doing all of this and seeing these improvements, how did FDNY leadership share these lessons from 9-11 and beyond with other agencies? Can you tell us a story about that? Yeah, yeah, there's a, I think it's a good story. During Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans got hit, of course, everyone knows the story about that, really hard. But the New Orleans Fire Department was hit really hard. They had some folks that were really experienced with flooding in New Orleans and the effects of hurricanes in New Orleans. And I think it was their chief of operations. He was a really sharp guy. He had his own modeling software, hurricane modeling software that he used to follow. He had a pretty good idea of what the effects of Katrina would be once it made landfall. And he was right. And prior to Katrina making landfall, he removed many of the apparatus in New Orleans that he felt would be in areas that were flooded and moved them to high ground. Nonetheless, the New Orleans Fire Department took a, a really hard hit. Many of the firehouses were hurt. Apparatus were lost. Many of the folks working in the department down there lost their homes from flooding and their families were dispersed. It was really a tough time. So the chief from New Orleans made a phone call up to New York and, and asked if we could go down and help. And we did go down and we implemented an ad hoc fire department. We uh, basically relieved New Orleans firefighters so that they can go home and take care of their families, take care of their homes, and get things back in order so they could eventually get back to work. So while they were doing that, we put together an ad hoc 
fire department by uh, collaborating with folks from Chicago and Maryland and, and remnants of the New Orleans Fire Department. And we delivered the essential services. We uh, protected life and property as we could. But here's where the other part of the story comes in. When the World Trade Center was uh, hit and it collapsed, folks from New Orleans came up and helped us immediately. So we were happy to go down there and help them. But what I think is an unbelievable and totally surprising move was that the folks in the state of Louisiana collected money, had a, a brand new fire engine developed, and they gave it to us. And they trucked up this fire engine from New Orleans, and it was named the Spirit of Louisiana. And it was put into service in New York in Brooklyn. Can you imagine a, a fire engine donated to the city or gifted to the city of New York and to the fire department of New York? It was just really heartwarming. What a great move. So, you know, the bottom line was, yes, we, uh, we had a new capability. We were able to help uh, a sister city in need. And really, and, and importantly, it was a change that was observable. It was tangible. And not only did it, was it helpful for the folks down there that we went down with our 650 people, but it was a tangible improvement. And for us back home, we could actually say, hey, we didn't have this on 9-11 and it hurt us, but we have it now. So it's helpful for us going forward. And it's really a good achievement to help put, put those hard feelings of that day or our lack of a capability that was missing or a capability we didn't have that day. We could put that behind us. And now we were going forward in an observable manner. Wow, Mike, what an inspiring story uh, with tangible change in outcomes. We're talking about this in the middle of an extraordinary time in the world. Uh, COVID-19 has shifted the very fabric of what it means to live and work. Um, what parallels do you see between the changes that were required to rebuild after 9-11 and what the world's facing right now with COVID-19? Very similar events. And from a, an organizational development perspective, I would call these both focusing events. There are sudden, relatively rare events causing harms over geographic area or constituency with a potential for greater future harms that catch the policymakers' eyes and become aware of potential policy failures. These are going to change policy. Both events, of course, 9-11 was a, a huge policy changer, and you know, COVID-19 will be as well. We can see policy, policy changes as um, you know, the response evolves. Um, the parallels were that um, they enforce the uh, idea that preparedness is ongoing. You, know, you can't prepare for one event and think that you're prepared for the next. There needs to be a continuous scrutiny of all levels. You hear all the time during COVID-19 about mindfulness, about taking care of yourself. High reliability organizations practice uh, mindfulness, which is the continuous scrutiny of existing expectations in the face of the potential threats or hazards out there. And it's the ability to incorporate new ideas increase your agency's or organization's ability to deliver their essential products 
in the, in the face of uh, new threats and or the unexpected. You know, uh, they illustrate that organizations may not be able to do it alone. This was a big one. On 9-11, it was very difficult for us that uh, our response, interagency uh, coordination that day was minimal. You know, now you need networks to respond to these things. And you need a framework that expands rapidly. And when things are under control, it uh, collapses to the appropriate uh, level that is needed. Just one last question, then. What advice do you have for other leaders as they think about how diversity and inclusion can actually add value to their business and to their organization? In emergency management planning, diversity enables people to see different things when viewing the same event. Cross-fertilization of ideas leads to richer planning and less blind spots and less blind spots reduce the likelihood of facing the unexpected and increase the likelihood of developing or delivering your organization's essential services or products. It, that's brilliant. And you're absolutely right. The cross-fertilization links to the inclusion. Any final thoughts about how we can increase inclusion? Yeah, reach out. You have to make an effort to get a, uh, a diverse group at the table to plan. It's, you know, something that really has to be done. You increase your ability to include others by taking part in activities like the uh, Naval Postgraduate School or, or the Fire Officers Management Institute, where the cohorts are diverse. And you have an opportunity to share ideas in, in, a, in a safe space and bring those ideas and cross-fertilize them back at the planning table at work. So you have to go out, and when I say you have to make the opportunity to do so, you, have, you need to seek out these programs that force ideas and diversity. Mike, thank you for making the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for listening to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.